I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And black is not a synonym for poor, but one could be forgiven for thinking that it were based on the way so many people seem to talk about race in this country. The majority of black Americans are in the middle class or above, yet the national imagination often seems to struggle to reflect this reality. And those who are living in poverty are often the last ones to tell their own stories. Our guest this week writes about the importance of accuracy in our descriptions of our impoverished communities and the need for representation that reflects the nuances of class that exist within this thing we call race. Bertrand Cooper writes freelance essays that draw on personal experience and social statistics to address conflicts between popular and academic descriptions of America's poor. You can view his work in Current Affairs, People Policy Project, or follow him on Twitter at underscore black trash. Bertrand, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. It is a pleasure to have you. Now, I want to start with a quote actually from another podcast you appeared on, a favorite of mine, called the Bad Faith Podcast, to kind of lead us into what the kind of general topic of our conversation is going to be. On that podcast, you said, quote, the way things are right now, with this super tight association between black skin and the assumption of poverty, there really isn't any reason for you to dig deeper than just picking out black authors in the Atlantic, the New York Times, going through the Hulu watch list that's already pre-made for you. And I'm hoping my piece initiates some suspicion in audiences that would make them look deeper, look up folks, and start actually asking people, how do I find black creators that are maybe using these alternative forms of media? Because I don't think right now that's on a lot of folks' radar, end quote. And your piece for Current Affairs, uh, entitled Who Actually Gets to Create Black Pop Culture, is what put you on my radar. It's a brilliant essay. But in many ways, I feel it could be more aptly titled Who Actually Gets to Profit Off Black Pop Culture. And I'm looking forward to discussing that with you today. So I'd like to start with a passage from about halfway through your essay, because I think it's very relevant. Quote, when I arrived at graduate school in 2014, I was 26 years old and in the midst of my 12th year of abject poverty. I was choosing then between food, rent, clothing, and medical care, which, given my asthma, meant a grand dilemma between food and air. This was better than my life before 18. As a high school freshman, I lived in a crack den and subsisted by begging classmates for pocket change or else stealing childish food items like string cheese and Sunny D from Publix Grocery. In between these wholesome adventures, I watched my mother desiccate at the end of a crack pipe alongside her boyfriend, who pursued the same hobby, unless the opportunity to ensnare her in physical violence arose, in which case, crack could always wait, end quote. And so I think before we get into the real meat of the essay, I would love to just hear more about your childhood, your childhood experiences, and how they have kind of acted as a bridge for you to become a writer, and how you've come to view popular culture in general. Well, thank you for starting with a softball. <laughs> Yeah, I like to really just let people <laughs> ramp into it. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll do my best to give the broad strokes because my life clearly informs my writing and it's much the reason why anyone's even interested in my writing, I would say. So I was born in New Jersey. I'm biracial. My dad's family is black. My mother's family is white, Jewish specifically. It had been about two generations of poverty on both sides of that family, either side and about three months after I was born, my father was incarcerated for manslaughter. He, previous to that moment, he had been 
what's normally called a drug enforcer. Me and my mom lived, this, this is going to sound like a TV show, but we lived with this guy named Tony who was paralyzed from the waist down. My mom sort of acted as a kind of nurse for him, but he was a massive drug dealer, I think mostly meth. And so my dad, some of his friends, one of my uncles at the time, mostly just acted as enforcers for him to beat up people who owed him money. And the rest of the time, he was just partying really heavily, abusing drugs. So was my mom. And then he killed an ex-girlfriend in the midst of some sort of argument or confrontation, went to prison from the time I was three months old until I was about 16 years old. Me and my mom stayed roughly in that house, in that area, until I was probably about four years old, four and a half. And then she got a boyfriend who was you know, much more financially stable than anyone she had ever been with before. He was actually, I would say, reasonably well off. He was a, an insurance agent. And so I did have a period of time that was more stable, but it's kind of like other stories you hear. My mom coming from her background, like changing her financial situation didn't necessarily change anything else about her personality or how she responded to trauma. So a lot of that time was me occasionally having nice things or a stable house. And then sometimes them having, because my mom's personality, just really violent outbursts that would lead to us leaving, staying with an aunt for time to time. Um, my mom was also, she was rather eccentric. I was diagnosed with asthma very early in life, but she didn't believe in Western medicine. And since parents very often have complete say over their children's lives, I had untreated asthma for about 12 years. The first 12 years of my life, there'd just be periods of time where I might not be able to sleep or not I wouldn't be able to sleep because I couldn't breathe. And sometimes, like I said, we'd be in the nice house where things are good. And then other times we'd be just kind of living out of a suitcase. Her and this guy would always get back together. But then it spirals really out of control around the time I turned 14. There'd been like one, one and a half years where uh, my mom had separated from, I'll say, the financially well-off boyfriend. And then they came back and then she decided to get married. And then that fell through pretty quickly around the time I was 14. And so we left to go down to Florida. Now, at the same time, it turned out that that reasonably well-off guy, he'd been committing insurance fraud the entire time. That's how he was making his money. I and mean, his life kind of spiraled out of control. So he wasn't, he had been my stepdad and I originally considered living with him, but yeah, his life spiraled out of control. He racked up massive debt just between like fines, losing his license and um, having developed like a pretty serious drug problem himself. At the same time, the bottom, this was in New Jersey. I'm going down to Florida. My mom has a boyfriend. It's an ex that she, during one of the times that um, she left the well-off guy, she had gotten involved with this other guy who they used to fight like cats and dogs, but he was pretty passive in terms of any sort of like physical violence or whatever. But this time I went to Florida, that changed rather dramatically. Both him and my mom got addicted to crack and some variants of it. I watched a house that she had bought with like the last of her divorce money slowly become like a crack den. So, you know, the windows get blotted out, uh, the boyfriend's, you know, making makeshift weapons out of PVC pipe and other things like that because of the paranoia. And they just kind of stop doing anything that has to do with being a parent. And so, you know, I don't really have clothes. I'm sleeping on a uh, futon like mattress in the back room. The house is dirty. There's just nothing there. And so, yeah, from like 14 on begins this kind of wave of really, really intense poverty. So I'd been born into poverty. Then I got into one of those spaces that often happens where 
or for many kids happens where like your your mother, because a lot of times it's a single mom, finds someone who's a little bit more stable and you get to have like this off and on good period, at least during the times where she's good with that guy. And then it descended to she found a terrible boyfriend, got addicted to drugs that brought back all of her old substance issues. And it was just a very violent household, not towards me. It was mostly witnessing my mom be abused. The only abuse I really experienced there was just continued, I would say, medical negligence and a lack of food, clothing, and the house was unstable. And then sometimes just the hysteria that involves drug abuse where my mom would get in her head that the house was possessed in some way. And so we'd have to go sleep in like some ratty motel. And yeah, I did that for maybe from like 14 to 15-ish. And then my grandmother, my dad's mom, notified the state of Florida that my mom was a drug abuser. And so they removed me from her. And kind of one of my last memories around that time with my mom is coming back to the house to pack up my things. And my mom's so far gone into her drugs that like she's barely dressing herself. She's just wearing like a thin robe and is mostly naked beneath that. And when I enter the house, she just starts panicking and saying that I'm not real and that she saw me die in her dreams and that I, you know, I must be a ghost or whatever. And I, so I, in that setting, I tried as best I could to explain that I couldn't stay with her. I'm not sure how much of that she remembered or what got through and that I went to go live with the grandmother, but my dad's mother is not really any better of a person. It's not like a sweet old relative comes to the rescue type situation and things fall apart with her pretty quickly once she decides that she doesn't really want to play the role of taking care of another person around Thanksgiving. So it's only like two or three months that I've been with her. She decides that she wants to go back to New Jersey. And so she just thinks that I, uh, for like vacation and says that like, I should just go stay with my mom. But at this point I've been assigned like a, uh, school psychologist by the state and I have to tell them everything that's happening to me. And when I inform them that I'm supposed to be staying with my mom, obviously you can't. <laughs> Once the state knows that your mom is a substance abuser and that the household is dangerous, you can't go stay there. So the psychologist is like, oh, I'll talk to your grandmother and sort this all out. Do you have any friends you can stay with? And I'd made friends with a, this one guy who was pretty involved in his church. And so, you know, he was happy to take me on just over the holidays. I come back after lunch, the psychologist tells me that my uh, grandmother actually freaked out, said I was doing all this to ruin her vacation, that she more or less rescinded me. And in about less than 24 hours, she changed the locks on me, put all of my stuff in a garbage bag and threw it on the front yard of my mom's house. Um, and then not long after that, social services was going to put me in a boy's home. But um, I made friends with a lot of other boys from similar backgrounds as me. And a lot of those homes and situations it seemed like you were either in a house that was basically like a children's home or a youth home that seemed a lot like a small kid's pr prison. It didn't seem too far away from just being a prison or you rolled the die to see what sort of foster family you got put in. So I left the state of Florida legally. I had an uncle that I could go back and live with in New Jersey. And this uh, sadly was surprisingly easy to do, even though I was fully in the system, had a guidance counselor, um, had a social worker, had guidance counselors. They have all this information and phone numbers of like other relatives. Once I was gone, they never looked for me. When I got back to New Jersey to stay with my uncle and his family for a bit, I was able to just forge a letter supposedly from my mom saying that like my aunt was like my guardian now. And that was enough for her to be able to register me for schooling. Yet yeah, no one ever received a call 
about me being missing in the state of Florida ever looking for me. So I did one more high school in New Jersey, and then I switched right around when I turned 16. My dad gets out of prison, not for parole. Just to add to that, my dad decided to only intensify his worst behaviors when he was in prison. So he was never eligible for parole. He maxed out a sentence. He was gang affiliated the entire time he was in there. And in the stories that he's always told me, pretty much relished the abuse that he was free to dole out there in prison and often seemed to miss that violence when he first got out. Not miss the violence, miss not having to negotiate or discuss things with people. He liked when he was back in prison and was able to just, if somebody didn't do what he said, he could just assault them. But I wanted to go somewhere. And so I stayed with my dad from 16. I didn't stay with him, really. He didn't have a place to be. We went and stayed with a half-sister's boyfriend and, and slept on a floor. This is part of a long period of time where I'm sleeping on the floor. And that was pretty rough as well. It was still quite poor. Me and my dad didn't see eye to eye fairly often. I didn't really care about school at that point. I was at my third high school. I'd been good at tests, but yeah, I just didn't care. I didn't have any dreams or really ambitions. By the time I'm 18, I hadn't read a book of my own volition, probably in about four years and racked up, I want to say senior year, something like in the area of 20 to 30, you know, tardies or late to school, almost enough to not be allowed to graduate, which seems like a ridiculous thing. But I want to hear how you transitioned from there to the man I'm speaking with today who wrote this brilliant piece for, for Current Affairs. A former guest of the podcast, Rob Henderson, shares a, a lot in terms of his childhood story. He, he bounced around between different foster homes as a kid and the kind of the gate for him to an elite education and better life, quote unquote, was going into the military and then finding that structure there and then using that as a jumping off point. Because if you just look at his childhood biography and the chaos that ensued therein, it's very hard to draw a straight line from there to where he is now. So I guess my question would be, and just listening to your childhood story, a couple things jump out to me. One, there's a, another guest of the podcast, Aaron Rabinowitz, who hosts a podcast called Embrace the Void. And we talked at length in our episode about the idea of moral luck, which is kind of a guiding ethos of the podcast, in my opinion. It's this idea, and it sounds like you're familiar with it, that I've heard a skeletal outline of it and have been intrigued, but I'm certainly interested to hear more. The super Cliff's Note version is basically we are lucky to be in whatever circumstance we're in and not lucky in terms of the, the way that it's normally used as in good luck, but literally just cosmic luck that makes me born into a middle-class family in Northern California and you born into abject poverty, right? It's a roll of the cosmic dice for every individual that gets them where they are. And I think a lot of that sort of luck is lost in our discussion around things like poverty and upward mobility and culture and all of these other things. So hearing about your story and everything that you went through, and we can get into this in just a second, because you talk about in the essay, the vast majority of kids who grew up in poverty and specifically within the black community who grew up in poverty, never escape it, never go on to breathe the more rarefied air that is available at some of these more elite spaces, right? So I guess my question is, is walk us through how you got from the kind of story you were telling us to kind of where you are today. How does that happen? A massive amount of luck. 
I'll name a few pillars to that. This is me looking back at my life and I doubt this is all that accounted for it. And I can't really, yeah, just <laughs> take for granted that this is just like what stands out to me. One thing is for whatever reason, very, very early in life, despite, and some of this may have been encouraged by my mom, but for all of my mom's flaws, she was very, very interested to the degree that she could be with her limited education and the idea of ethics. And like, she was kind of like one of those new age hippies who belonged to these religious ideas that Buddha, Jesus, what have you, those weren't just, those weren't just the God figures, but those were also people that you could be like. And a lot of my children's stories, like pretty repeatedly was like getting read the story of uh, Siddhartha Gautama, the, the Buddha, who I'm sure I'm butchering his name. Very early in life, my mom would say to me that this or that ethic or virtue was like really important and she's terrible at doing it, but she thinks that I could do better. And that combined with like this awareness that I had that I didn't want to be like my family very early. That's like one of my earliest ideas is that every bad thing that happened to them, whenever they would lash out, it seemed like if something went wrong for them, everything else around them became just an instrument for them to express their rage or their frustration. I didn't want other people around me to exist as kind of instruments for me expressing my frustration. I wanted very early in life to be someone who could endure almost anything and not take it out on other people. It was a very simple idea, but that was with me very early and further guided by my mom. So I avoided that one idea Plus, you know, having been afraid of prison my whole life because my mom wasn't good at hiding information, I knew where my dad was, made me hesitant to engage in any of the behaviors that would have possibly gotten me arrested early in life before I could get to the point where you're talking to me now. The other thing, and I want to be careful about this, in the same way that sometimes there's athletes from my background who, because of the inordinate amount of talent that they have in this one thing, that also happens to be really valued by our economy, in this case, sports, they're able to make it out. I always tested extremely well on all the academic and then, yeah, all the academic traits and all the traits that our knowledge economy enjoys. You know, I always did very well at cognitive tests. And basically, I was lucky enough to be born with an abundance of the exact cognitive facilities that people pay a good deal of money for and that they want in colleges so that as long as I survived long enough, at some point, I would find my way into better and better jobs because I just had the skills to do it. I had something desirable as far as the economy was concerned. The last part of this was that I was good at curating friends. And for a long period of time, I had a partner. We recently like divorced as of this year, but we were very stable influences on each other's life, high school sweetheart situation. And I had one person who I could kind of partner with to claw out of poverty from like 18 on. And so what happened was she had a lot of ambitions right out of high school. I did not, but I didn't want to drag her down. So I ended up going to a community college. And I should preface this by saying originally my dad just had in his head that he needed a son who should go to college. So right after 18, I did well enough to just like, I could just pick a school. I didn't know. <laughs> we know exactly how many Black students in like 2005 were able to score above a 700 on either section of the SAT. And it was less than 2,000 for the whole US, at least according to the, uh, I want to say it's like journals, Journal of Blacks in Higher Education. 
And I was in the 740s in verbal off my SAT, which I only took once. And a guidance counselor who might have been more invested in me and maybe a little bit more into gamesmanship would have directed me to like really try and buff up my like admissions letter and go to a really good school. But my guidance counselor barely knew me and didn't bat an eye at that. So it was just like one more test that I had done well at, but nothing really came of it. But I ended up going to Rutgers. My dad didn't understand anything about financial aid. I couldn't afford any of the books. It was a disaster experience that left me like I had to leave after a semester and a half. But it did make me aware that college was run differently than high school. And you were a little bit more free and you were just given a syllabus and able to go. And the papers, few papers I was able to turn in were very well received. So I knew I was going to go back, but I still didn't have any dreams. So I ended up going to community college because I don't want to drag down my partner who has a lot of plans. I walk in the door at the community college and the closest table to the door is for a dual program to get a bachelor's at that campus if you get accepted to a four-year like satellite school that operate on the community college. And you would get like a bachelor's and also a master's in teaching. And so I just did that and grinded it out, to be honest. A lot of my school experience was in, you know, the post immediate post recession. I was in a part of New Jersey that isn't exactly booming. And so I just worked lots of menial jobs like washing dishes at Cracker Barrel or being a prep cook or pumping gas, what have you. Very often they would say that it was great that I was trying to go to school and everything and that they'd support that. But the first time that I couldn't do something because I had to study or because I had a class, they would cut my hours and I would deal with it as long as I could skip meals if I have to. That was pretty regular. Live uh, to some degree off the uh, surplus refund I would get, although I didn't understand the financial aid system at the time. So even though I should have been eligible to go to school for free, I didn't know how to do that paperwork until a little bit later when I was helping my partner and then some other friends get more aid than I did. But yeah, it was just a trudge. I went through community college. I got pretty much all A's the whole time. And then I went to Fairleigh Dickinson, which was a private school. I met some great professors there, but you know, I really shouldn't have gone there because it was incredibly expensive and I would have been much better off at Rutgers if I, you know, had done that the whole time. When it comes time to teach, you know, I've been subbing for a while, but I realized that I like education. Like I like the research, I like the theory more. And I was really intrigued by this idea that there was a PhD program or something. There was some place that I could go that was in some way just full of people who are really focused on high quality scholarship. So that had been intriguing to me. I'd also considered joining the state police in New Jersey, which surprises some people, passed everything, but got waitlisted because I have no EMT or military experience. And while I was waiting in the interim, I connected with the department head at Rutgers Graduate School of Education. I was really enamored with him and he had this program that was supposed to give you a sense of what being a PhD would be. Yeah, so I started there in 2014, and that kind of jumps into my paper where it's like, I'm going to this school, I'm at the graduate level, I'm in New Jersey in the Northeast, so there's obviously going to be black students in my classes, but I'm at the graduate level. So in a way that I didn't experience before, it's like anyone who isn't coming from a reasonably stable home, both financially and in terms of like organization, like whether or not their house is chaotic, anyone doesn't have a stable, reasonably well-off home has mostly been seeped out at that point. And because I'm going in 2014 and education is very liberal leaning and New Jersey had a good mix of female and minority students and everything was happening in Ferguson, 
the classes were all getting very, I was in an education theory and policy program. And, you know, the focus there really is in education, you know, are, are we helping people to be mobile? Are we helping them improve their situation? That's when I came in contact with all these statistics having to do with incarceration, having to do with college attendance and college graduation rates. And I came across that statistic that's really a centerpiece of the work that I did at Current Affairs that there's a brief out of Obama's White House just saying that, you know, only around one in 10 low-income high school students is graduating from college. And despite a very, very spotty math education, which could honestly, my education could be its own like little 30-minute reel because it was very weird. I had a good facility for arithmetic. And so when I heard one in 10, I immediately was interested in the complement of that, which means that if only, you know, one out of every 10 low-income students is getting a bachelor's degree. By extension, that means nine out of every 10 bachelor's degree holders are not from poverty. And since I'm studying right now in these classes how low the mobility rate is for the black poor, what I'm finding out now is that they never get to go to college. And because generation after generation of them, of you know, the community that I have ties to, is stuck there, it's kind of like... I've called it a quasi or a semi-caste. You have the same group of people repeating poverty again and again and again. And everybody is getting the same statistics as me. But when the Black students would recite statistics about incarceration rates, which I've already revealed why that affected me so much, not only was my you know, dad in prison, but friends of mine, their parents were in prison. And you know, my life was constantly at risk of being in prison. It was something like Raj Shetty found out of Harvard, who did a massive study. He found something like for millennials born around 86, 88 and whatnot. My odds of going to prison would have been like one out of four based on where I was coming from. And probably a little bit higher when you factor in a, uh, my dad actually having gone to prison. So I'm tied to all these statistics that they're naming in a very personal way. But when they say these statistics, they're saying my, we, a lot of first person pronouns, and they're talking to the other white students. They're letting the other white students know that they have, these are their people in these statistics. The issue with that for me was one, just from having grown up around I'll go by analogy. It's not very difficult for white people to tell someone's background. A lot of times you very often can tell when someone grew up in white poverty, regardless of its variant, whether it's rural poverty, urban poverty, if they're Appalachian, it's, there's just a lot of tells that are obvious to white people who come from other classes. The same thing for black Americans. It was immediately obvious to me that these other black students were not from poverty. That was clear. But we were also studying the statistics that made it very, very clear that just me being in that room, being that one in 10 who graduated with a bachelor's degree, and then going on to graduate school in a classroom of 12 or so students with like four of them being black, the odds that all four of us came from poverty were astronomically low. It was completely impossible. But that didn't seem to dawn on anyone, even as they were studying these statistics. And that's kind of when I became aware that there was some sort of several layers of disconnect where we were so sure that black skin has this intrinsic tether to poverty, that even as we're studying statistics that say like not all of these black kids can be from poverty, the white kids didn't notice it. And the black kids, if they did notice it, they didn't give a tell. The only time I saw people come to grips with that was 
if I, and I think this is some, it was somewhat out of irritation. If somebody said something, a lot of times when the black kids would be talking and kind of make an argument to the white audience that was available to them, which would be, you know, the other seven or eight white students in the class, they would say, you know, they drop a statistic, almost mic drop style, like here's this terrible disparity between white and black people. And then they would sprinkle in a bunch of first person pronouns showing that they came from that back, you know, implying without saying they would just imply that, you know, this has been happening to my people for like, or my communities. Only at that point would they then give their own sort of argument about the way things were. And sometimes they would characterize the thinking, the minds, the political will of the black poor in ways that I just knew weren't true. Mm -hmm. And so I would rebut, but I would do it in a way where instead of saying me, my, we, you know, I took out all the vagary. It would be exactly like what you saw in my essay. I would stake my claim to actually having those credentials. One of the things I get out of my piece is just this idea of being real black in its current incarnation. You are real black yeah. to the degree that you have these stereotypical traumas, which I have in spades. And once I laid claim to those and then countered or argued against one of my other black students' opinions just because I knew it was wrong from my own experience, the room would fall silent. Those black students first, they hadn't learned how to argue their position. I want to build on what you're saying by tying in quotes from your essay. Sure. I'm hoping that some of the listeners have taken the time to pause the podcast, read the piece, and then return. But for those who haven't and are just listening to us here, sure. I want to help kind of ground them and ground what you're saying for them in the wider context of your piece. Because I think what you're talking about right now is super relevant, obviously, to the essay. But there's a, a quote that I pulled that I think is directly relevant to what you're saying. You quote Baldwin, who says, quote, the Negro is a social and not a personal or a human problem. To think of him is to think of statistics slums, rapes, injustices, remote violence. It is to be confronted with an endless cataloging of losses, gains, skirmishes, end quote. And then you go on to say, because my life conforms to this, what Baldwin called the usual bleak fantasy, I get to occupy what most people think of when they think of real black. This means that I do not have to omit or embellish aspects of my life in order to convince society to view me as, quote, black, or more to the point, to see me as, quote, not white. Light-skinned as I am, the more tragedy I share, the blacker I become. Abject poverty is not normally an advantage, but it can become one if, for example, your livelihood depends upon audiences perceiving you as real black, end quote. And I think this is a perfect jumping off point, and you can continue the story you were sharing there, but I wanted to add that context, because I think your essay is ultimately about a few interlocking things. And I'm going to kind of run them by you. And then you tell me how accurate I am at summarizing it. So I think it's about the societal perception that happens both in and outside of the wider black community, that poverty and blackness are interlinked. The influence that this perception has on what is considered either quote, legitimate or quote, illegitimate expressions of black identity, the co-opting of the culture of impoverished black communities, like the one that you came from, often a sanitized or pantomimed version of it by middle and upper class black cultural artists, entertainers, et cetera, or the fellow students that you were with at Rutgers, and the extreme concentration of wealth within black America, to reference a Cornell West quote in your essay, quote, you got 1% of the population in America who owns 41% of the wealth, but within the black community, the top 1% of black folk have over 70% of the wealth. 
end quote. Would you say like by and large, and please feel free to jump in and correct me if I'm off base here, that that's a decent summation of like the larger points of your essay? Yeah, I would say that that is, that is a really good summation of it. I think the only thing I might add, and maybe this was captured collectively by those who was missed slightly, I would say my essay also includes this thinking that the black poor are entitled in some way to those experiences that the statistics capture, that those are not just statistics, but those are their lives, those are their memories. To make stories out of that without giving them the opportunity to make them stories themselves and without any obligation to collaborate with them is an appropriation of, it's not just culture, it's, it is culture, but it's also just at a fundamental level. We don't normally think of memories as belonging to someone, but I am interested in making sure that the experiences of the Black poor, their actual memories belong to them in a way that society mm-hmm. recognizes that is a, is a big one for me. In that essay, you touch upon something that I think anyone, I imagine, who is, you know, kind of in this space reading about this stuff, and I can definitely imagine within the Black community, and as a side note, I, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, I, the more conversations like this that I have, and the more that I, you know, I read and talk with other folks, the more I take issue with phrases like the blank community, right? Because I, yeah, and I imagine you could probably speak on this for hours, right? Because I I think what it obscures, right? Especially to outsiders, right? Like let's take the seven or eight white kids in your Rutgers class, right? Mm -hmm. And I imagine even this would be even more the case in 2021 than it was in 2014, where you have a kind of white deference to black experience, which is not misplaced entirely, right? It's obviously Mm -hmm. you want to listen to people's experiences from the people who experience them. And I think that, I mean, I know that American history is rife with examples in which white people just don't want to listen to black people, no matter what uh, class they're from. But I think that with this idea of a community, what it can mask is what I think you talk about in the essay, which we can talk about at length here, is kind of an intra-racial appropriation that happens where people from the middle and upper classes appropriate a culture that oftentimes, like you've said with Donald Glover, Dave Chappelle, that they've never experienced. But because the idea of poverty and blackness, and not for completely illegitimate reasons, understanding American history, because they're so intertwined in the minds of so many white people, they never question it, right? So you can have an issue where, or you can have an event where someone from the middle or upper class who is black, racialized as black, can talk in we, us, I language, and the white person, perhaps not having any close black friends, because as you've said, for for every one white person to have a black friend, that means that six black people need to have oh, yeah. a white friend. Is that Do I have that stat right? So, because white people outnumber black Americans, yeah, because white Americans outnumber their black peers six to one, for every white American to have even one black friend, every single black person in the country, including newborns right now would need to instantly have six white friends. Six white friends, right. So you've got this issue now where because because of segregation, historical injustice, etc., you have a scenario and also just a numbers game where a lot of white Americans or Americans from other backgrounds, Asian, Latino, etc., don't have super close a lot of them don't have super close connections with black Americans. Right. And you link that with this belief that blackness equals poverty in all cases. And you get a lot of distortion. 
Yeah. So I, th- I think a way to approach, so to finish the one story, once I would reveal my connection to poverty in very clear language and be disagreeing with another Black student, there would be this weird effect. It, it was revealing to me of the kind of situation that Black identity exists in. The other Black students, in a sense, they wouldn't know what to say to me because when everything's kept vague, the white audience that we're normally speaking to can just choose whichever black opinion they like most, as long as all the black people sort of credential themselves in these vague or general ways. Once I made it very, very specific, you know, there's a limit to how much people are willing to omit or twist their own biographies. These other black students weren't going to just instantly lie and say they too came from a crack den. So they didn't really know how to respond to me because all of their arguments for the most part were arguments on authority about this experience. And I had just taken all of that for myself. The white students who, and some of them probably were just like virtue signaling or going along, but many of them I do believe were genuinely empathetic to the black cause, but um, they were young and naive and had assumed that blackness was such a cohesive identity that they could just listen to whatever the nearest black person to them was, and they could be on the right sort of the right side of history on black issues. And now I had confused that for them. And so the room would just be stuck in this space. And it was revealing to me that, you know, I basically got to see all at once that black students, young black people, currently, you know, millennials and Generation Z especially, are always up against this possibility of being labeled not really black or not like the other black people, or you're a white black person depending on which identity they pick, you know, something that comes to mind is the black nerd who, because they like Star Trek, has always been considered white. The only identity that's really available to young black people that the white audiences will accept from them as like authentically black is this identity that's kind of a pop cultural curation of certain elements of poor black culture. And it wouldn't even be poor black culture all over the country because even there, there's a hierarchy. It's a, it's an amalgamation of these sort of ghetto cultures that arose in the Northeastern cities, the Great Lakes cities, the West Coast cities, really got the lion's share of dictating like what the black culture is primarily through, say, like hip hop and those cultures. So those kids learn the same way white kids learn about rap and all this more or less from TV. Some of them do still have like cousins or whatever that live, you know, maybe in the hood that they get to visit sometimes, or maybe the cousin gets to visit them over summers and they're able to kind of absorb some of this. But taking on that identity is the only way that their white peers are going to accept them as authentically black. And they're, these are young people who are at a moment where they very much want identity At the same time, there is an economic component to this. You know, we're talking about people in graduate school, or if we're talking about popular culture, we're talking about people whose dream is to write or create for a living. And that's done based on an audience's taste. Most of the audience is white. The only thing that very often white people are interested in getting from black creators is a perspective that they don't think they can get from other white people. Now, one way to really cut to the chase on this is if you found out that a book or a show about the hood was created by a black person, but that black person happened to have been raised in a $400,000 household and went to, say, Trinity Day School up in New York, which you know has a tuition of around $60,000 a year, 
you can be pretty sure that much of the white audience, especially the one that's interested in what they consider authentic or real blackness, they're going to be far less interested in what that person has to say about black culture. So there's an actual professional risk for every black person involved in creating anything, whether it's creating academic research or creating TV shows. When you're creating for white audiences, there's really only one identity that white people want from black people. It's the only identity that they're also willing to, for lack of a better phrase, purchase. Your audience can think to themselves of like seeing black people on the Daily Show or any number of places. Typically, the only time that a black person is considered an expert on something outside of music or sports, maybe we could broaden it to outside of art or sports, is if they're being asked about what I'll call the suite of oppressive statistics, poverty, incarceration, police violence, things of that kind. And that holds pretty well, I found, in my studies of popular culture. So we're in a very complicated situation where the Black poor are the ones who actually make up these statistics to an incredible degree. My favorite go-to example, but your audience should understand that, all of the oppressive statistics have basically this same distribution. When you look at black prisoners, somewhere around eight out of every 10 black people in prison were living in poverty prior to being incarcerated. And again, thinking about the complement of that, that means that of all the prisoners who are black, eight out of every 10 are coming from one class in black America. That's the poor. And that's also a class that repeats for the most part, generation after generation. So we're talking about black prisoners coming from the same sets of families again and again and again. And then two out of every 10 prisoners who are black was raised in a non-poor household, something that's either going to be middle or upper class. But when we convey this information, we talk about mass incarceration as a black problem or as something afflicting all black people. Now, those statistics and the same thing, and I'll carry this over, is going to happen in police violence and police sh shootings. George Floyd grew up in CUNY Homes Projects. Breonna Taylor, I believe, if I recall correctly, comes from similar settings. When you look at it, it's mostly poor Black people are being killed. And the response to that, we typically expect popular culture to be the first place to respond. So we have these deaths and this incarceration and all this happening to one class of Black people, the Black poor activists are able to use those statistics to sort of galvanize support for initiatives that are supposed to, in theory, help Black people. We see this most often in popular culture, you know, Hulu watch lists that are curating Black television for viewers to watch. Part of this is because white audiences, again, the ones who are interested in Black people, are primarily interested in the experience of these oppressions. And in some way, especially the ones who are kind of really hoping that art and popular culture can create this sort of, have this effect on white Americans. If they're imbibing black art, that maybe that will connect them in some way to this black poor experience that will prevent them from being okay with the deaths of somebody like George Floyd. Then there's the element of it that is transactional. In a way, if you think all black people are the same, then giving anything to any group of black people is going to be in some way remunerating those communities for what happened to George Floyd. Right. George Floyd and these others are being killed. Here's jobs in the form of popular culture. Here's more presence in our culture. Here's more prestige in our culture. 
And that's where the college statistics come in. Because in your piece, you talk about how in the protests that followed George Floyd's murder, that Floyd himself would have never benefited from those very protests. You wrote, quote, were Floyd still alive or somehow reborn, he would not be hired to work within any of the institutions which now produce popular culture in his honor because he never obtained a bachelor's degree. No matter how much Michael Brown or Breonna Taylor might have impacted a living Floyd, he would not be eligible to work at The Atlantic, at The New York Times, at HBO, or at Netflix, end quote. And I think that one of the things that disturbed me a bit about some of the protests last year Mm -hmm. was just seeing a lot of... And I'm trying to be generous, right? Because I think that because I think that engagement in these protests is a net good, right? Mm-hmm. But I worried while watching a lot of young white people holding up signs of George Floyd and all these other things, right? Mm-hmm. That they saw, as you've astutely noted here, they saw George Floyd as the poster child for the black experience rather than what he really was, which was a sub-community within the larger Black community that had its own issues and problems that, as you've just noted, in pop culture remediation, when these expanses happen and new shows are created and new books are written and read and go to the New York Times bestseller lists and, and staffs are diversified, right, which are all good things, they never benefit the type of people like Floyd who were on these posters, And it's because of this racecraft that like the Field Sisters talk about in their book of the same name Mm -hmm. that leads a lot of non-black people to believe that, well, if I just help someone who looks like George Floyd, then I am therefore helping someone like George Floyd. And those two things are not analogous at all. That's right. Pop culture over the last decade or so has a little more than decade actually has been a tool for allowing or or encouraging the collapsing of Black people into one category. I'm 33. People who are close to my age or people who have, like Nick and I, and maybe like some of the nostalgia, will have seen all these shows from the late 80s and 90s. I grew up on that stuff. Yeah. Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the jokes do not make sense unless you have some concept of class, unless you can tell (laughs) that Carlton is, you know, different from Will Smith in these ways. The jokes don't land. You have the Cosby show, you have Martin, you have Living Single, you have show after show after show that for, you know, members of your audience who maybe didn't watch these shows, basically, they're just as class conscious as Roseanne or Married with Children or The Simpsons, where it's very clear that within this group, and in this case, instead of being a white family, like in Roseanne, talking about black families, Class was all over the place, and a lot of there was a lot of class consciousness about that. Many of the black leaders in the 90s who were leftovers from civil rights frequently commented on the problems and issues of poor black culture. And something I, I reference all the time was in 2007, there was a Pew poll surveying black Americans and asking them if they thought that the values of the black lower classes versus the upper black classes had changed so much that it no longer made sense to consider black people one group or one race, if you will, which is kind of a strange question, but that's how they phrased it. And almost half of the black Americans surveyed in that said, yeah, the values have changed so much that we're no longer one group and the black poor were the most likely to feel that way. And then over the last, really it intensified over the last decade, 
you don't get shows that really show Black Americans at different class levels having extremely distinct values, personalities, frames of references. You might get a show that in some way feels explicitly about class, such as Blackish, which might feel like very Black middle class. But you don't have these moments. In these older shows, you would have moments of conflict between Black people at different classes where they didn't see eye to eye. Whereas in the newer shows, not only do you get a less rich view of class, you get a lot of these speeches and scenes where somebody who's Black from the middle class is speaking in the first person on behalf of all the Black poor, and they're not really getting any flack for it. So you're being encouraged all the time to think suddenly that class, to whatever degree it exists, it's not as present in Black Americans' lives as it is in white America, which just isn't the case, but we're being given that information all the time. And it makes it very hard to have the sort of conversations that I'm trying to have with people because they just, they can't conceive of it because their whole life, they, you know, they know that you're not supposed to say all Black people are poor. You're not supposed to say that, but they don't really know what that means. And if I I think unpacking that for your audience a little bit would be um, just helpful. If you were to ever get in a conversation with someone who is very into race activism right now, and they were to say that, like, let's say they're arguing with someone about whether or not white privilege is real, as soon as they're done saying, you know, white privilege is real and the other person is like, I don't think it's real. What's your proof? The race, you know, the activist is going to point to all these statistics and those statistics capture certain experiences that are supposed to prove they lay out what the black experience supposedly is and what makes it worse than the white experience. And most of your audience who, you know, maybe dabbles in this stuff will know that like, okay, first big one, poverty. That's something that black people experience more often than white people do. Then you have incarceration, you have police violence, you have inferior schools, and I could go through some more, but you get the gist. What's missing from that discussion, what's not being understood is that almost everything that I list after I say poverty, it's not separate from poverty. It's something that is exacerbated within conditions of poverty. So you have this situation in black America where 18% of Black America is poor. We've had this studied over multiple generations. Most of the Black poor, upwards of three-fourths in any given generation, live and die poor and give birth to children who will live and die poor. So this community of 18% is made up of a lot of people who are third and fourth generation poor. They're not joining the other Black classes. So it's one group of people. Then you look at these individual statistics. Well, how what class of people are being incarcerated? What class of being Uh, people are being killed by the police, what class of people, so on and so on and so forth. And what you get is these numbers like eight out of every 10 black prisoners was previously poor. So now we're at a point where we have this community that rarely have ever joined 18% of black Americans living in poverty. That means, you know, the other 82% are not living in poverty. This poor group is not joining that other 82% with any great frequency. And they're the ones suffering most of these oppressive ills. If the black poor were to suddenly vanish, the prison population among black Americans would drop around 80%. And if that were to happen, activists would lose most of the leverage that they need to get white Americans to think that black issues deserve to be front and center. So what you end up with is this tiny, tiny percentage of black America, which is a tiny, tiny percentage of the US, suffering most of the things and creating most of the numbers that we use to define the black experience 
for this other 82% of Black Americans who don't have the same odds of experiencing any of those things. And if you're holding this in your head right now, and I've named all those things that are like defining the Black experience, if we jump over to somebody who's Black and from the upper middle or even upper class and they're in Harvard, they're, if we define Blackness the way we currently are, they don't have much personal experience with any of those things. They were never at high risk of going to prison. By definition, if they're in the upper class, they cannot be poor. So they're missing just that poverty altogether. Black Americans in the top 10% of the income threshold are you know, among the least likely to live among the bottom 10% of their group. It's normally us and Asian Americans who are the least likely to put our rich and poor close together. If I played a little bit of devil's advocate here, mm -hmm. um, or just push back a little bit, you know, feel free to fact check me if I've got these stats wrong here. But I think if I were in the mind of, let's say, the hypothetical activist you're mentioning here, they would say that, and I'm pretty sure this is true, I'm, I'm going from memory here, that the average black middle class homeowner is going to live in a much more economically mixed neighborhood than their white peer right? I've got friends here in Los Angeles who have lived that experience, right? And I think another way that someone might push back on kind of the broader statement you're making is that it's much more common for people who are Black, even if they're middle or upper class, to have relatives or close friends who are in poverty in terms of the ways that their families are interconnected or their relationships are interconnected with other members of their community in a way that for a lot of white Americans just isn't the case. I'm not taking issue with any of the stats that you're citing, and those are all really relevant and I think speak to the broader purpose of your essay and I think kind of of your project, which is that the people who really deserve the attention and the opportunities and the focus uh, is the actual impoverished who need to be lifted up. But I would say that, and I don't think you're doing this, but I would say that for anyone who might hear what you're saying and think, oh, well, then there isn't a problem. It's all class and not race. I would say to them, I would say that it's more complicated than that and that the ways in which even middle and upper class Black Americans intersect with poverty, even if they are not impoverished themselves, are more numerous than their white counterparts. Is that accurate to say? If I ever get the chance to write a book, this is something that I'm going to dig into. What you're saying is right in a sense. I'll start with the first part about Black people living in much more mixed neighborhoods. This comes from two different kind of lines of research. One that um, Ta-Nehisi Coates popularized when he was still writing heavily for The Atlantic had to do with Paul Jergowski's research on concentrated poverty, which is typically areas that we would identify as like rural or, ur or urban ghettos. They'll have, I want to say the threshold that Jergowski was using was something around like if 40% of the neighborhood is poor, that's when it starts to have these really famous features that we associate with ghettos like when it's above 40% of the neighborhood is poor, that's when we start seeing these super, super high rates of violence and things that kind of we identify as slums. And that starts to dwindle away as the threshold of or as the amount of poverty goes down. Coates popularized that research, pointing out that the black poor live in concentrated poverty at a higher rate than the white poor do. So there's this idea that black people, what he was getting at, are more often to like live in this sort of poverty that's much more intense and different than white poverty. And I'm going to give some other examples, but this, this is really key. One of the issues with the word poor 
is that there's this other version, which is, or, you know, addition to it, poorer, that writers can talk about being poorer than somebody else. And very often, the journalists who have been entrusted to deliver this information to the public, they have used poorer than some white person as equivalent to actually being in poverty. Poverty is a very, very specific, it's a very specific idea. It's basically the point at which you can no longer afford all of the basic necessities in your area simultaneously. So you have to start going without them. And for any area of the country, you can calculate what the cost to have, you know, food, clothing, housing. And if you want to include medical care, it's very easy to find those numbers. Being in poverty is having less than you need to satisfy all of those. Whereas being poorer than some white person could really be on any scale. If a white person on average in, you know, the computer industry is making, or in the tech industry is making, say, $150,000 annually, I'm just making this number up, and the average black worker in the same place is making 100000 you can say that blacks are poorer than their white counterparts. But even though you're using that same word, they're not actually in poverty. So going back to the Coates research, which he made or the research that Coates popularized, you had this idea that black people were more often living in concentrated poverty. It's true that black people who were not poor were more often living in areas of concentrated poverty than you might expect. And white Americans who are not poor were living in areas of concentrated poverty at very, very low rates. So the basic idea is that you have somebody who's not poor, who for some reason is still living in the ghetto. The actual research, though, when you look at the numbers, um, this is Paul Jargowski at you know Century Foundation. It's also in the Ta-Nehisi Coates article. For white Americans who are not poor, only 1.2% of them still live in poor neighborhoods. So basically, among all the white people who are not poor, around 98% of them also do not live in neighborhoods that have high poverty. Black Americans who are not poor, they do live in concentrated poverty more often, but it still comes out to 91% of Black Americans who are not poor do not live in concentrated poor neighborhoods. It's not as good as white Americans, but we're, the research actually shows that in both cases, something over 90% of the non-poor for both groups managed to escape the ghetto. So... This is the problem with just saying like poor or worse than a white person. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's common for all black people's experience. Segwaying from that to the mixed neighborhoods, most of that research, again, you can, what they'll do is they'll show you the median or the average income of that neighborhood. And they'll show that a black person, say, making $70,000 a year is living in a neighborhood that is poorer. It has a lower average income than a white person in the neighborhood that a white person lives in when they make 70K. But when you look at the average income for that neighborhood, we're not talking about a neighborhood where the average income is actually at poverty levels. So it might be that the 70K white person is living in a neighborhood where most people make $60,000 a year, or on average, they make $60,000 a year. When we look at the black person making 70K, they're living in a neighborhood that might make 50,000 on average. But poverty, to give your um, listeners a frame of reference for a family of four, is making less than $27,000 a year. So that average, even in the black neighborhood, is quite often double the income, the highest income that a poor family of four can make. So to talk about the economics and race, 
what we're lacking is a way to sort of cite, express, problematize types of financial injustice that don't actually involve poverty directly. It is a problem that Black people are making less money than their white counterparts, especially if it's for the same work. It is something that you have to consider if Black people on average aren't getting into neighborhoods that are quite as wealthy, especially as education costs more and more and more. But the way that people have chosen to problematize that information and make the public care about it is to be very sloppy with the word poor and with the concept of poverty and always make it seem like anytime you can show that a black person has less wealth, less income, or less of a connection to those things than some white person, they're automatically in the impoverished class. And that's just not the case in the research. Got it. Okay. I appreciate you elaborating on that. That makes sense. I guess my question, my follow-up question to that would be, why is this happening? Why is the phenomenon that you're describing happening, right? And why is it being spoken about at kind of a national level, right? In this inarticulate way, right? Because I, I think, and again, you talk about this at length in your piece, there are real problems. There are real people in real poverty who would benefit from assistance, opportunities, connections, et cetera. I mean, just going back to the biography that you talked about at the opening of the show, I mean, there are a million different ways that your life could have zigged instead of zagged and you wouldn't be talking with me here today. You would have either been in prison or just still in poverty or there's just so much luck that happened along the way in spite of the fact that you just... I think that financial aid and Rutgers example that you gave <laughs> was really important, right? Because there's a metaphor that I think I've used to death on this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to do it again here. Imagine you have two people and there's a race around the world, right? And these two people, they start in like, let's say Los Angeles. The person in charge of the race is like, okay, the first person who is able to circumnavigate the globe and get back here to this spot in LA will get a million dollars, right? You know, ready, set, go. Now, if only one of those two people had heard of the airplane, <laughs> uh, the other person could go as fast as they possibly could, right? They could take cars, trains, ships, you know, horses, camels, whatever. They would never beat the person that knew about the plane. When a lot of folks think about poverty, right? And think about people who come from that circumstance, whatever their background might be, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, native, etc. A lot of folks don't appreciate how intensely fraught it is to navigate your way out of it. Because I think, and this is just me kind of <laughs> soliloquying here because it's important to me. The pull yourself up by your bootstraps, the self-made man talk, right? I believe in the idea of it. You should promote agency and you should promote people of any background to make a better life for themselves. But what happens and what is lost in phrases like that is that people don't really grasp how little you can know if you don't know you should know it. Right. <laughs> If you don't know, you should know about investing, which I didn't learn about until my mid-30s because Fair. my parents, <laughs> for all their amazing things they passed on to me, didn't learn about it either. If you don't know about it, you can't know you should know it. Your story about Rutgers and, and financial aid is just a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of an example of how things could have gone wrong for you along the way, if not for a sheer amount of luck. And, th and that, that's a bit of a rant, but I think, <laughs> I, th I think it's important because I think a lot of this stuff just gets lost in these conversations. So I guess to steer us back towards an actual question I can ask you yeah. rather than rant at you is why do you think, Bertrand, that 
We're having these conversations around race and class so terribly. Why are we talking about communities that are hyper-diverse in terms of their economic and cultural backgrounds as if they are one community when talking about them and more thinly slicing them like you do in your work would benefit more people? Why are we having these conversations so wrong? Okay. Why are we having these conversations so wrong? So I'm going to make a note for that real quick because I just want to go back to something that you did ask that is really important that I address, even if I do it very briefly. There are non-poor black people. And when I say non-poor, that's just a catch-all for maybe just on the cusp of middle class or maybe you know full-on solidly middle class or upper middle or upper class. You're just not in poverty. You have enough money to sustain all of your basic necessities. Some of those black people do have cousins who live in poverty. They have family members who they can visit. But I want people to take this part very seriously. The part of the family that is living in poverty is in poverty seven days a week. Seven days a week, their whole life and their understanding of it is shaped by poverty. It's not having enough. And in addition, because these are multiple generations of people in in these families, part of their understanding of what it is to live there is that they probably won't escape. And Kendrick Lamar has a wonderful song called Black Boy Fly. And it's about how Kendrick Lamar, growing up in Compton, got to see two other black peers in high school actually make it out of Compton. And the sheer terror this fills him with, because he thinks the odds that he would be the third, that there could even be a third, is impossible. Now, when this cousin goes to visit their hood family, I can guarantee you they were sent with food money. I can guarantee you that if they're the middle class cousin coming to visit their port, they're staying for like maybe a weekend. And that's only if their parents are fairly sure it's safe. Then maybe once they're teenagers, they can go and slum it. But not only are they not being poor seven days a week, they're typically not even poor when they're there because they were given some money and they can leave. They'll never grasp that inescapability that is as much a part of the ghetto as the bricks, the dilapidated buildings are. They just don't get it. They can't. It's not part of their experience. So they do get to observe it. But at least when we're talking about popular culture, I mean, listen, every man has women in his family that he gets to observe. Nobody makes the argument that that proximity or having them in his family means that he has the authority to write very authentic stories about female experience. Many people have LGBTQIA members in their family that they observe close, that they have intimate relationships with. That doesn't give them the perspective to be the authentic voice on that. We really only make this argument, not that you're making it, it is a common argument, but it really only comes up with Black Americans. And even if it were the case that it gave the you know wealthy cousin a better chance of capturing their you know poor black cousin's experience. That's no reason to not ask. Well, why don't you invite your cousin into the writers' room? But they don't. So that's something that I want to bring up to your other question. Why are we having this conversation so wrong? Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's grammatically correct of me to say. Just as an addendum there. I don't feel like anything would be lost by adding more nuance to this conversation. And in fact, we would help more people who really need it. So I guess I'm just, I'm trying to figure out why there aren't a thousand more Bertrands, right? (laughs) Yeah, that honestly is something I'm sure your audience appreciates and can also see this coming is like, there's so many things that create a situation like that, um, that create that sort of broad negligence and mishandling of information. 
So I'll try to hit a few and maybe some of the interesting ones. One I'll hit is that the proportion of Black Americans who were in poverty changed rather rapidly in terms of like cultural, in terms of the the speed. You know, if you go back to 1955, half of Black Americans are living in poverty by the same sort of definitional standard that I've been using with regard to biological necessities. Half the population is in poverty and a good portion of it that may not be in poverty is having their money rendered worthless by Jim Crow style laws, even after Jim Crow ends and those things are still happening behind the scenes. So, And that was in the 1950s where 50% of the black community was in poverty? I believe I have that number correct. And that would be wow. according to the US census. They have income and poverty reports going back to, I want to say like 1955, and they release it every year. So not that long ago, 1955, there's still people around from that time. In the span of like a single generation, we switched to having a much smaller proportion of Black Americans living in poverty. So it's important to understand that for all that time, there was this immense connection to the black poor. And during the time that, because, you know, half the population was. And so most of those civil rights years and all of that forming of how do black Americans and and specifically activists interact with politics comes from a time where most of them did have a really clear connection or not most of them, but they had a much clearer connection to poverty. And honestly, as a white audience member, we're talking about a time where you could have flipped a coin, you know, and if you just guessed that a black person you saw was poor, you had like a 50% chance of being right. It wasn't that long ago. That shaped, we're talking about like the civil rights era, that shaped so much of how, of I'll say the blueprint for interacting with black politics. So there's a lot of leftover thinking that hasn't been updated to appreciate the fact that the Gen Xers and then millennials now Gen Z that have been born since then don't have that same connection to poverty. And so there needs to be a different way of, you know, kind of making our case to white American and talking about, yeah, just connection to poverty has changed a lot. The other part, you said, why aren't there a thousand more Bertrands? That itself helps create the problem. Um, It's an unfortunate thing, but most activism you know, most people get involved in the form of activism that relates to their own identity group. And just to give people a sense, because I, I really think it's important to give people a sense of the distance that most of us live from poverty. Right now, you know, the poverty rate in America is somewhere around 11%. That's for the whole country. Everyone else is above the poverty line to some degree. If you make $15 an hour, so not a whole lot, but you have a 40-hour work week and you work 52 weeks a year, you're going to end up with something like 30 grand. You will be making around $3,000 more than the highest earning family in poverty. If you were to look up the average salary for any of our famously low or level or menial jobs, whether you're looking at custodians or possibly yeah, just things at the custodial level, you'll find again and again that if that person has full-time work, they make more than what we're referring to when we talk about families in poverty. I'm not saying that they're rich and that they don't have any financial issues or anything like that. What I'm saying is like most people don't understand that poor is so freakishly uh, poor. It's so far and away beneath what you think the lowest amount of money you can survive on is. That's a very distinct experience. And again, most 
you know, most of the black activists you're going to meet are also black. Most of the women's rights movement is made up of women. Same with indigenous folks. We tend to activize for our own group. If there's not a bunch of black poor people in the room for various reasons, one, because like you said, if you zig when you should have zagged, you're basically taken out, you might die early, you might be in prison, but you're not getting to college to then get into these rooms where you can advocate for your own group, which is the black poor. And I can guarantee you that if there were, if there had been an even split of like poor black kids in those graduate school classes I took, where there was like a split between the black poor and black kids from other classes, the black poor would assort, assert their claim. They would notice that other people are just kind of taking their experience, but we're not in those rooms, so we can't activize for ourselves. And so it's kind of up to the black middle and upper classes and also to their white audiences to decide whether or not that matters. Um, then the last part of this is just maybe the conspiratorial part of the part where you recognize some not good aspects of humans. Um, there is more power to be had by the black middle and upper classes if they have complete ownership of the lives of the black poor. If they're allowed to speak for them, um, they have way more political power and they don't have to negotiate with as many people. Similarly for, you know, it's mostly white Democrats who are interested in seeming like they side with the black poor. Um, if all they have to do is negotiate with other black middle and upper class people who, because they grew up in those same classes and were educated in the same ways, um, already agree with most of their liberal talking points, that's just easier. It's just significantly easier. So there's a lot of political utility in not sharing that power with the black poor and not treating these things more nuanced. I think those would be the pretty big ones. Are you familiar with the work of Zed Jelani at all? I'm not. He was a guest on the show a while back and he wrote, I think, what is an interesting thematically companion piece to your work. It was called Identity Theft. And he basically talks about how upper class, elite educated people from underrepresented backgrounds will, as you've said here, kind of leverage the experiences of the impoverished who happen to simply look like them, right? Mm -hmm. To gain advantage in elite spaces. He calls it a kind of identity version of stolen valor. Yeah, that's a very apt comparison. Yeah, I thought you might think so. Stolen valor in the military sense being pretending to be a war veteran mm. when you never fought in the war, right? Right. And what's tricky here, right, is I'm a very big believer, and I talk about this in the show, I think representation, right, mm. really does matter. I think that seeing someone who looks like yourself in a position of power or in media, it can send a signal that society will allow someone who looks like you to succeed, right. right? So whether it's women or people of color or another underrepresented demographic, representation can send a positive signal. But I think that there is kind of a visual fallacy that's kind of baked into that premise, which you speak on, right? Which is, I kind of want to pull it apart with you here. No one really talks about impoverished white West Virginians because, quote, they, and I'm using heavy air quotes here, are represented everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. They, right? They being white people right. on TV, in movies, etc. So there's no need to worry about them, the poor white people living in West Virginia, because they are taken care of representation-wise, right? right? But really, they're not. Absolutely. I look like someone 
give or take, I'm a little more olive skinned, but I look <laughs> like someone in the hills of West Virginia, but I'm not them. I don't share their culture, their background, their experiences or whatever. So someone like me being in a, and I, and this happens constantly. You see this in like the fortune 400 and you'll be like, there's X many white people and X many black people. And right. there is, I don't want to undersell this. There is value in discussing numbers like that. There is, it does point to something and it does require, you know, societal remediation. But I think what gets hidden there, right, with like the story of the white West Virginians is that similarly to how George Floyd wouldn't get that deal at Netflix, but some well-connected upper-class Yale graduate who kind of looks like they might be related to George Floyd genetically would get an opportunity. I think that something that said Jelani wrote in his piece was how there was a, a proposed strike, I think, in the New York Times staff like a year or two ago, where the staff writers, and if you look at the educational backgrounds of the staff writers, the New York Times, regardless of what their racial makeup is, they were like overwhelmingly from elite colleges. Right. They made this public statement where they said, we want the racial percentages of the New York Times staff to accurately reflect the racial makeup of New York City. Zed said that if they wanted to be truly accurate, then they would have to hire a bunch of working class people from all backgrounds who never went to college. Right. Because just matching the racial makeup of the New York Times staff room, but just hiring them from the same elite colleges over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, we've hired 20 more, you know, Latino staffers who are from Yale and elsewhere doesn't really serve the people within Hispanic communities in the Bronx. But yet it is talked about as if it would. And I don't know, I sound like a broken record here, but I think my question to you, Bertrand, would be, in your opinion, right, coming from this background, advocating for folks with your background, what is the best way in your view that we as a society, people who, who give a damn, right, can enable, can empower, can give opportunities to people from those backgrounds so that they might be heard, so that they might be given opportunities? What are your best like societal level recommendations for this or even individual level recommendations? What are some ways in which we can get those folks opportunities? So I'll do that at one level. I'll start with the personal because that's the one that's most likely to get done. It's very easy today to look up whether or not somebody has like a Wikipedia or to find out their background. Now, I, I want to be clear here. I have no issue with the black middle class or upper class creating art. I'm somebody who's like very much enjoys indie films and existentialist philosophy. And it's like without the, I imbibe quite a bit of what people from wealthier classes have created. But if you've made the personal choice that you want to connect this poor black experience, or even you don't want to connect, let's say you're just interested in financially supporting it, and you also happen to enjoy reading or whatever, you just got to commit to doing a little bit of research the same way that once, you know, people got more interested in where their food was coming from, it was just making a little bit of research a part of the buying process. There are black writers who do come from a more impoverished experience. There are black filmmakers who come from more impoverished experience. Barry Jenkins, I always forget the other's name. It's like Terrell, uh, but I don't think it's Terrell. I think his last time might be McCraney, but they did Moonlight and Barry Jenkins has gone to do other things. They're from the same ghetto in Miami. So th there are people out there and you can find them if you just do a little bit of research. In my understanding, some of the things people have said to me is like on TikTok and YouTube, there's uh, many more. So I think you can do it. And the more people who are 
actively looking for those things, the more likely we're going to get to a place where suddenly there is, you know, a bookshelf just for black authors from poverty, or there is a channel on YouTube or something like that. Eventually, if enough people are doing it on their own, someone will come, someone will feel like there's a chance of just consolidating this information, making it easier to get. At the societal level, that is trickier. My best hope, this is a very, very limited hope, I guess I would say, is because black people are only like 13% of the country and the black poor are a fraction of that coming out to something like 2% of the whole country, there, there really isn't, there really isn't a way to shift the culture without having white Americans. I mean, black people need to do it too, but without having white Americans who also are more, I guess, scrutinizing, I would say, when somebody just seems to be speaking for the black poor, the best example I can give, um, one that really stuck to me going back to graduate school was that this was right around the time that even a watered down intersectionality was enough to make people say, you know what, I don't think white women can speak for all women anymore if they come from really wealthy backgrounds like Sheryl Sandberg or Lena Dunham. And we got to a place where eventually now every time, say, a women's march or something like that doesn't do something concrete to include women like poorer white women or uh, women of color, they get criticized for that and not criticized just in like deep parts of the left or in these little narrow liberal space, like that has a chance of being in the New York Times. You know, it's something that we just catch now. We just, we see it. I think the first thing would be getting to a place where like, that's how we respond when we see like somebody just using those first person pronouns to describe, you know, black statistics or like when they're talking about their film and saying how, you know, it represents this or that, or it's showing this part of the struggle actually expecting them to show a real connection or show how either they themselves, how were they connected to those things or how did they collaborate with people who did? I mean, research has been complicated in this way, not complicated in a bad sense, but it's had to deal with this for a long time. Like there's a whole body of literature about like, how does an ethnographer or an anthropologist or anyone who's going into another community actually collaborate with the people that they're researching so they're not just exploiting them to create more like academic stuff like there's other areas where this work is already being done so yeah somehow we have to get to a point where when somebody does it they at least get criticized and that that process gets as mainstream as like when we criticize lena dunham i mean she's dated at this point but yeah criticize someone like that for speaking for all women without qualifiers that would be step one i don't know how you actually get to the other steps because of course if i look over to women's rights groups it's not like and since 2014 the panels are full of formerly impoverished women it's not like they were able to make it to the end zone on that but at least people are aware they have that first step that it's not great if just the wealthiest white women can speak for all women yeah it seems to me like a few things need to happen almost simultaneously their impoverished people from all backgrounds would benefit from some fred hampton rainbow coalition style union yeah. right in which people who are much more alike regardless of their racial background in terms of their socioeconomic conditions with each other than they are with the people within their racial group who are from an upper class background, right? I mean, I, I keep going back to, I think probably my favorite modern Saturday Night Live sketch of all time, which was the 
one with Tom Hanks as like the working class Donald Trump supporter. Did you see that sketch? I didn't. Oh my God. I'll send it to you after. It's, it's, uh, it's absolutely brilliant. He appears on an episode of Black Jeopardy <laughs> on Saturday Night Live. It's just this brilliant piece that basically shows how working class white folks and working class black folks share a lot of common cultural touchstones. And it's great. And then obviously towards the end of it, it all kind of implodes because the racial undertones and, and white working class resentments kind of start bubbling to the surface. But the whole like first like 80, 90% of it is really about hammering home how much in common these people from similar socioeconomic backgrounds have. So it seems like that is sort of something that needs to sort of come to fruition. I was going to say just quickly, because I don't want you to lose your train of thought on that. I agree with that. I also think that the coalition probably would be the best way to get it done because we would need a large number of people. And so that organizing around class element, Fred Hampton style, Rainbow Club, that would be, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, no, absolutely. Although it feels like there's a lot of societal or cultural forces. I'm not conspiratorial enough to hasten a guess as to why, but it feels like there's a lot of stuff working against a potential coalition like that forming. But I feel like it would really benefit a lot of people. And then I think also, just based on what you've been saying over the last 90 minutes or so, I think there needs to be a movement to disabuse white people of their notion of seeing black people as sort of universally impoverished. Because I think as you say in your essay, you get these scenarios in which you know, I think well-meaning <laughs> white folks understand that they've been ignorant about a segment of our society for a long time and they feel uh, understandably driven to act. And so, they see a black face on a book or in a movie or a television show and they think, okay, there we go. I'm supporting this person, right. et cetera, et cetera, right? And that's not bad. I don't think there's anything bad about that, but they're not directing their energies where they probably would want to which is to the people who share more in common with, let's say, George Floyd than Oprah. And last but not least, I think, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this last bit, Bertrand, it almost feels like we need to also allow a wider spectrum of the quote-unquote black experience in pop culture so that black creators, like let's say Donald Glover, who you talk about at some length in the essay, don't feel a need to legitimize themselves in the eyes of the mainstream only through making stories about black poverty via Atlanta, right? But I feel like the only way to do that, it almost feels like one way in which we can elevate impoverished black voices is to make it more okay for people who aren't from that background to tell stories that are just about their experiences. Yeah. So on that last point, sometimes I've gotten this response to me where people have said that I'm, including some black people have said, have, have accused me of policing blackness, that I'm policing the boundaries more or less of saying who is and isn't black. That sort of gives it away that <laughs> exactly the problem that I'm talking about. I'm not policing blackness. I am policing poverty. I am saying where the boundary of poverty is, but for some people Black and poor are so synonymous that just by me saying not all black people have these poor experiences, they cannot help but interpret that as me saying that the black people who don't have them are less black. But all I'm saying is that those people are still just as black as ever. They just happen to be black people who aren't poor. And that's... That's an important distinction to make. It's an important distinction to make. I do think your last point is really important. It's just very... It's very difficult. Yeah, there needs to be 
And this is something that in some ways requires, and it will probably fall to the youngest generation to do, it requires a dual effort. You know, Donald Glover has a, a really great story, I think, and it's part of why like, I use him so often. He was a black nerd. He goes to a performance arts high school. The other white kids are really excited to have to be around a black person because they think that that black person is going to be able to tell them about rap and hip hop and what sneakers are cool. And Donald Glover is like, I don't really listen to those, but if you want to discuss, you know, the soulful stylings of the cranberries, I'm your guy. And then he jokes about how some white kid just starts beating him up for not <laughs> delivering the blackness that they wanted. And he also has stories of more, I'll say, black people who do appear to be, you know, quote unquote, real black in the way that they've had a lot of those oppressive experiences also don't accept him. And he gets beat up by them as well, or called, you know, all sorts of uh, derogatory terms by them. So it needs to happen on both sides, or at least in the places where black and white people interact, white Americans need to be willing to accept other black identities as authentically black, that there's nothing that you can be black and not have any connection to hip hop whatsoever, any connection to poverty whatsoever beyond, you know, maybe you had a cousin or a great grandparent who was in poverty, that you don't need those connections to be 100% black. Right. Or pain or suffering. Yeah. There's something just to yes and you here. It's like, I talked about the importance of representation with Nadia Gill. Uh, she's a, a documentary filmmaker, Egyptian and Mexican heritage. She's great. One of the things that we touched on in her episode was this whole idea of authenticity being linked to heritage, but then that heritage only al allowing for a certain type of authenticity to speak for it, right. right? So she would talk about how certain documentary grants would be set aside or it would be talked about in a way of like, oh, we want to make sure that we're giving this grant to someone from XYZ background, which is fine in and of itself, like uh, giving people opportunities who didn't have them before is I think a net good, right? But the problem would be is that within that grant or within that bargain, they would want a certain type of story within that milieu to be told, which would therefore limit the type of person that ethnicity could be, right? So it's not just that we want to give more opportunities to Mexican-American filmmakers. We want to give opportunities to Mexican-American filmmakers to talk about DACA, yeah. right? Yeah. Which, again, that is fine. That's a documentary that can and should be told. Right. But the problem is, is that when you link Mexican-American and undocumented immigration as this thing that is tied together intrinsically, you limit who that person can be and how they can express themselves, quote unquote, authentically. And this happens with any kind of, quote unquote, marginalized community. There's been a, an amazing spate of shows that have come out over the last few years that have been really brilliant, right? Including like, let's say, Watchmen on HBO. Right. But even that, right, which is a, one of my favorite shows of the last decade, and I think rightly heralded for its great writing and storytelling and narrative, etc. But it feels like so much of what it's not the fact and I'm, I'm trying to be <laughs> if I'm stuttering over my words here, it's because I want to be very clear with what I'm saying. Mm. Showcasing black poverty, black pain, suffering, etc. is I don't want to say it's good. But as a creative endeavor, it is good. It is it is worthwhile, right? Like yeah. showcasing that side of any human experience, whatever their racial background is, is good. The problem that I have and what drew me to your essay and where I so agree with you is that that should not be the main or only or majority lens through which we see a person of a certain background 
Because if you see it too many times, you begin to erroneously think that that's all that it is. Right. And I think that that is a problem. So there's a few things that are really interesting to me there. One, yes, I do think if that's all you see, you do start to think that that entire group of people looks that way. And it goes back to that statistic. You know, it's important to remember that minorities are a minority, uh, especially in the case of Black Americans. Most white people do not know Black people directly. And that gives popular culture. It turns popular culture much more than it normally or necessarily is into an educational tool. So white people are in a position where they really do have to default to popular culture to learn about many other minorities, but black people being one of them. And so it does create this situation where that's, you know, you think all black people have a connection to that in some way. There's also, and this is important, I think, to remember, and this is more of a point just about like truth and art. It's maybe less political, but going back to having so few poor people actually making the things that we're viewing, when I see a lot of the stuff that's supposed to capture black poverty, I can actually tell that it wasn't made by somebody who was black and poor because the way they internalize the things happening to their characters, the way they show it, the way they depict it, the way they have characters describe it. There's a very clear middle class sensibility in all of that. And even their subject matter, if, if I can give like one dark example, one of the experiences, first thing that comes out to me, and this is going to, again, sound strange, but when I'm involved with people who are born and raised in the middle or in upper classes, is that in their minds, violence is automatically very gendered. It's primarily for men and not something that women engage in very often. Among poor people, Violence is actually a matter pretty frequently of who's got the edge in either aggression or in physical size. And it is an open tool to both genders and especially among poor whites and poor black, you know, both sides of my family. The women get in fights. They don't just fight men. They fight each other pretty violently. They use weapons. I was told, and this is a terrible expression, and I hope People aren't still saying it. You know, I'm not still a kid, so I don't know exactly what poor neighborhoods are saying right now. But many moms told their sons in those areas that if, you know, if a girlfriend or whatever is man enough to hit you, she's man enough to get hit back. Violence is open to everyone. And I've had one friend who, you know, wanted to write a screenplay. She was in a screenplay shop or a workshop where she wanted to depict lesbians in a domestic abuse situation and it would be on like the lower income side. And she was encouraged by other members of her LGBT community not to do that because it would reflect poorly on the community. But it is a part of those communities. It does happen. When I'm watching how women and things like that are depicted in these various things, I, I notice how rarely like poor women, whether they're black and white, how rarely they're shown being willing to engage in violence. They're normally the recipients of it. Whereas like my memories are of it as a free-for-all. I knew women who carried razor blades. Uh, you know, it's, it's just very clear when something is being viewed from the middle class and has that sensibility. I know that's a very dark example to use. And No, and I, but I, I'm glad you brought it up because I, it's so patronizing. It's so utterly, not what you said, but the idea there was this movie that came out in 2004 called Better Luck Tomorrow. Brilliant, brilliant film. All Asian American cast, co-starring a young John Cho. 
among some other brilliant actors. I'm blanking on the name of the director. He went on to become quite famous. I think if I'm misremembering, he's, he's gone on to make some really huge movies. He might have even directed a Fast and Furious movie. But at the time, right, like in 2004, we're still kind of struggling at scale for good, diverse Asian representation in 2021. Right. But in 2004, it was pretty much non-existent. Right. And there's this famous clip, you can find it on YouTube, where they're doing like a Q&A after the film was screened. And a white woman stands up and asks the cast and crew, right? Because Better Luck Tomorrow is, is about like gang activity and like a seedier side of Asian American middle class life, right? Where it's intersecting with poverty. Mm-hmm. And this woman is saying like, why did you choose to make this film and represent your people in this way? Mm-hmm. And the reason that this video ends up going viral, even in 2004, is because Roger Ebert was in the crowd at the time. And he stands up and he starts basically shouting at her, being like, I'm summarizing here, but basically, how dare you gatekeep? How dare you police how these artists want to depict their own community? Mm -hmm. It's not for you to say that they should put on a good face or they should portray their community in this nice way so that outsiders can see them for the upstanding citizens they are. They contain all of the multitudes of any other community, right? This is before I went to film school when I was just thinking about film, but I remember watching that clip right after I watched the movie, which I absolutely loved. And it really stuck with me because this is a problem. And I, I feel like I'm, I'm, this is just like the Jonathan Rantz show, but like, <laughs> maybe it's because of my artistic background. I, I have a love for storytelling. This stuff really matters to me. And it is something that is such an undiscussed problem. This idea of well-meaning people, usually from outside of a community, or even sometimes within it, which is what you just mentioned, policing the kind of stories that can be told about that community because they don't want the community to look bad. But they don't realize that that's like a death by a thousand cuts because you are limiting the actual creative expression of people within that community. And they should be able to say whatever the... I'm going to not curse on my show. They should be able to say whatever they damn want to say. Particularly if it's true. I, I, <laughs> breaks my heart, man. It breaks my heart. I, I agree with you. And I agree with you even more when what they're depicting happens to be to the degree that artistic representation can be accurate to their real life. It, it feels very strange to me to tell anyone, listen, if something about your life, even if it really did happen, is unflattering to the community, don't include that in your work. It's just bizarre. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate. You know, one of my big curiosities and going back to, you know, that thing that you said about, you know, why isn't there a thousand more folks like me is like, I have this critique that I put out here of various forms of popular culture and various expressions that, you know, black, middle and upper class people have made. But I'm kind of by myself in terms of like, I don't know if if there were 20 other poor black kids who managed to go and say, get degrees that position them to do art criticism. I don't know what they would think. I have no idea. And I have no way of knowing because society just hasn't created a situation to allow for that. So I remain curious about what, what movies would be made. Sometimes I think about, you know, there's a a particular, it's almost like a new gangster rap, but like it's, it's drill. It's a, you may be familiar, but it's a very, very gang um, and violence oriented form of rap that many of the people who are stars in it are going to be younger than like 23. And many of them die before their 23rd birthday, even as they've become famous via their music and 
it's an interesting juxtaposition for me to think about how like if I listen to a song by, you know, uh, Pop Smoke or King Von and I, you know, I extrapolate because a lot of times, especially with King Von, he's just almost telling the story of like days and things like that. Like it's, he's not inventing stuff. He's, it's very biographical or memoristic. It's almost like he's just writing about stuff that he saw happen or that he was involved in. Um, that's all very violent. But if you were to extrapolate values and beliefs and things from that music, and then compare it to, say, what you hear a creator like Issa Rae, who, black woman who does Insecure on HBO, might say politically what her values and whatnot are. There's such a divergence that really makes me wonder, like, if those uh, many of the drill rappers are in poverty, if it had been possible for them instead of choosing music, and music just has very low threshold for entry, if they had been able to go and choose other forms of art. What would they create? And I'm also really curious, like, would a white middle and upper class, you know, an America that's mostly not poor and mostly white really still be interested in getting to see the black poor up close if they got to see how, uh, for lack of a better term, how brutal and ugly some of that art might be? Like a lot of the King Von songs are very harsh and very violent. And I assume if you were able to write stories or screenplays that would carry over. Yeah. I mean, my best counterpoint to that would be Italian Americans, hmm. right? Like, I mean, maybe they would go the way of, you know, a Francis Ford Coppola. Hmm. That's possible. Not to, I think the problem you're pointing to is real in that I think that there is a certain threshold that is both racial and class-based that can limit the appeal of certain subgenres. But whether it's the Mean Streets, mm. the Godfather, I mean, really any of that kind of genre of cinema, I think there is an appetite for it there. But even though, I mean, in the age of the internet, Bertrand, I mean, and I think you know this uh, just as well as anyone, <laughs> it's like, are you familiar with the concept of a thousand true fans? I think I am, but it would be worth hearing again. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's originally from um, the, the kind of the tech space. I think everything's technologized now. <laughs> it's this idea that you don't need that many people to like your content and to be aware of your content to make a living off of it. Let's say you have 10,000 people who watch your or 100,000 people who watch your YouTube videos regularly. Only 1,000 of them need to be true fans for you to make a decent living. And by a true fan, what that means is that they're going to buy any merch you sell, they're going to buy anything that you make, they're going to subscribe to your newsletter, they're going to whatever it is, right? They're right. a thousand true fans. And if you can get $10 a month from a thousand people, even if a hundred thousand people watch your show every week or whatever, but only a thousand of them pay you for stuff, you're making six figures, right? Right. So I would just say, as a silver lining, that you can exist within a subgenre of a subgenre <laughs> of a subgenre. And if your content is good in 2021, you can make a decent living off of it, which I would also say is hopefully another kind of silver lining to another argument you make in the piece. We could talk about this for another couple hours, but the idea that there's a certain amount of elite structural gatekeeping that happens because in order to get to some of these rarefied places, the Atlantic, the New York Times, et cetera, you have to go to some pretty elite colleges. Right. But hopefully, because the internet and uh, whether it's through music or other forms of entertainment or writing, et cetera, 
that those avenues are opened up, but maybe that's a conversation <laughs> for another show. But yeah. I honestly, no joke, man, I just checked out how long we've been talking and I cannot believe it's been two hours. It feels like uh, we've been talking for 30 minutes. I really enjoyed it. I, I will say real quickly, uh, I mean, I'll say some more about the enjoyment. I'll say really quickly, like I would love for whatever it takes to make some of those more, I'll say guerrilla style or entrepreneurial avenues to get to a thousand fans, if that's the way it's got to be done. Yeah, I support people doing that. I will say that, you know, I, everything I've accomplished has been through cold pitches and I've had some success with that clearly. It's a difficult road to do. So I'm still hopeful that, you know, to give like one example, Ibram X. Kendi is, he's killing it right now in terms of uh, how much exposure he's getting, how much he's getting to publish. He's basically occupying what was, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates' position. For those who don't know, the writer Between the World and Me, he's basically occupying that position and maybe then some as far as his white readership and his connection, you know, getting $15 million donation from Jack Dorsey at Twitter, having all of his nonfiction books, bought the rights of them, bought to Netflix, getting a MacArthur grant. He did a communal history. Uh, I mentioned this in my piece, but he did a whole history of Black America where he was able to get some 91 different Black scholars onto the product to each write a chapter. You know, he's got carte blanche to do whatever he wants. And he's somebody who also mentions the evils of capitalism or says that, you know, you also have to be worried about classism. Um, so this guy, you know, he's got all the power. He can basically do whatever he wants. And he still chose to use college as his, you know, way of selecting folks to participate in this project. I think it would be it would be so easy for somebody in that position if they just committed to it to try and open up the platforms that they have to people who come from poor backgrounds. And I would like to see that get done. And that's only because I found doing things <laughs> through cold pitches and just really struggling to be really difficult. It would have been far easier if there had just been like one of these initiatives actually included one of these diversity initiatives. When I say that, had actually included like class is like how they select within black people, but it's always just all black people should apply. So it would be great if some people with power already just wanted to make that switch and start building these inroads. But if not that, then yeah, the internet and getting those 1000 true fans. But that was my last rant. It's been great talking to you. Um, I really do think we could talk for, I can't even imagine how long because two hours really flew <laughs> by, but I appreciate you having me on here and for the questions you came up with. Oh, of course, man. I guess my one hope would be before I ask you the final question that I ask every guest on the show, and this is going to sound like super hallmarky, but you've written a lot of great work. I mean, we didn't even talk at all about your article for the People's Policy Project, which is entitled Inequality is High Within the Black Community, which you wrote in 2020. I'll link that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Wow, that seems forever ago. I know, right? Time flies. And I hope you continue to get your articles published because they're great. I think they offer a really important perspective. I don't know, man. Maybe you'll go the Substack route one day. <laughs> or I guess my hope would be is that at one point, you're in a position where, like Kendi, you can offer the opportunity to 91 writers. But when you do it, I imagine you'll be selecting in a much different way. I hope that that's the path for you because I, I really enjoy your voice. I, I, like I said, I don't want to blow your ego up too much, but <laughs> I, I brought you on because your writing really spoke to me. Because even though we don't share a common background, I thought the take that you have on your experience is really unique. And I'm just really grateful to have you on. So thank you for coming on. Wow. <laughs> this is kind, man. I, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I needed to resonate with people. <laughs> I'm, so I'm glad it did. 
I'm sure people can probably guess this or assume this, but the degree of response of positive response that I've gotten is I never expected to get any of it. I really thought I was just even once current affairs, you know, because I've been getting getting turned down more or less for several years. So I was just expecting, okay, I got in current affairs. It'll be a nice little blip. I'll be able to say like, I'm not just complaining about this. I tried to do something. And then the response came and it was a complete surprise. And, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier that I didn't have like a bunch of dreams coming out of high school. Honestly, I did a lot of this out of, as corny as it sounds, some kind of bizarre sense of duty. Hmm. But much of the time that I was writing, I was... I was exhausted. My, you know, life, family life, things like that didn't get markedly better than what I describe in that piece. Things did not change that much over the past few years. And there were a lot of times where I just wished somebody else would beat me to the punch and that I would be able to quit and stop working on it. I just wish somebody else would get through before me. So, but that didn't happen. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm glad that I've finished. I'm glad that I've gotten this response. And I get a lot of like really amazing direct messages from people who have similar experiences and they saw the same thing that I saw, but they just, <laughs> the zigs and the zags didn't work out for them to be the person to say, it, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you for writing a man. Selfishly, I'm glad someone else didn't beat you to the punch. To bring us to our final question, I, I think your, your piece is very relevant to it. And the question is this, as individuals, we're limited in our time, our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned and caring person can't be thinking of every person, every group of people all the time. It's just impossible. There's not enough hours in the day, right? Is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? I mentioned earlier that my mom was, you know, kind of like a new age hippie type individual. And, and she was one of those people who, you know, very early on was, for better or worse, this is a group of people that, you know, likes knowing about every ethnic, not likes knowing about it, but they know, you know, they're watching PETA videos, they're keeping track of the different genocides, um, ethnic cleansings, the different wars that are going on. Um, my whole life, I was always made aware of all this suffering that was happening. She didn't tell me necessarily to do something about it, but it was just like, that's what she, for some reason, she just kept looking at all the suffering that was happening in the world. So I just grew up always being aware of all these different places where people were in terrible pain. I mean, this is, this is already the drum that I bang, but a big part of, I think, why I'm drawn to writing about poverty. And I, I specifically write about black poverty, but I'm concerned with poverty across the board. It's my empathy goes to just everyone in the world who doesn't have enough to purchase the basic necessities for life. There's so many people I write about the black poor, but it's, you know, <laughs> there's people all over the world who it's so hard to really wrap your head around poverty, but it's like, yeah, just people who have to choose whether or not to eat or to have a shelter or to have clothes or to have medical care. And the poorer you are, the less you get of those things. And so your life is just degrading. Your body is degrading and you're just dying. I write about the black poor, but there's people all over the world who suffer that. And poverty becomes like this funnel for whatever your society is worse at handling, poverty will funnel those ills right into your life. So 
yeah, just empathy to all the people um, who aren't black and poor, but are poor that I don't get to formally acknowledge in my writing. Well, thank you again, Bertrand, for coming on the show, for taking the time and for the work that you do. And I look forward to reading your future pieces, man. I'm really looking forward to it. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you. It means a lot.